Hello out there in virtual viewership land. This is Glenn Lowry of The Glenn Show. We used to be at bloggingheads.tv. Now we're at the YouTube uh, uh, slash forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. And we're also at substack.com. I'm with John McWhorter, my regular conversation partner. We talk twice a week. Twice a month. Let me slow down month. and get a grip. Yeah. John teaches at Columbia University. He's a uh, linguist, widely published, and uh, fabled instructor in the core curriculum there. I teach at Brown University. And uh, we're back to talk about the stuff that we talk about. Uh, you know, I didn't warn you, John, but I have been uh, burdened in the last couple of weeks with a correspondence with a dear friend whom I won't name, who is uh, inveighing with me that I'm wasting my time talking about race. He says, you're an economist. You know, I had Larry Kotlikoff on last week on the Glenn show. We talked about inflation just the way, you know, it was inside baseball, economists to economists, quantity theory of money, Milton Friedman, all that kind of good stuff, you know, inflation. And he says, you should give your audience vegetables before you feed them dessert to make them think hard about the real stuff before you go off into the fluff. And I, and I asked him uh, tongue in cheek, well, is it okay if I talk about the Rittenhouse trial, uh, the uh, Ahmed Arbery trial, it, would that be okay? I mean, you know, while I'm uh, returning to respectability and unsullying myself with this cheap race talk, could I address myself to, you know, one of the most gripping issues that's uh, confronting the country today? You know, so I was being a little bit sarcastic. But um, I don't know. We've talked about this before. Being confined. Now that you're at the New York Times, you have this mag megaphone uh, with your twice-weekly newsletter and whatnot. Uh, and you got range, so you're not always talking about race. But uh, do we cheapen ourselves by you know constantly coming back, by self-consciously calling ourselves the black guys, and by feeding red meat to bubble because we have so many fans out there who just want to hear a couple of black guys say stuff about race the way that we say it. I think about that sometimes, and I've been thinking about it lately because, you know, both of us have real beats like that don't have anything to do with Ahmaud Arbery. You know, the eye. That's what I'm saying. Linguistics. And, you know, even this week, I was, you know, finishing up a, a survey article about linguistics that had nothing to do with any of this and thoroughly enjoying it. And then thinking, lately, I spend more time talking about, you know, what we can call by proxy Ahmad Arbery than I spend doing this. And I'm sure you've had the same feeling. And I always, day to day, say that I feel like our doing this is a duty. But we do have to ask ourselves what it's actually for, because there is a certain circularity. Never have I felt that more than with the rise of Kendi, because Kendi's rise is just the same thing as Coates. And I'm not saying that to dismiss either one of them, despite the fact that everybody knows how I feel specifically about both of them. But the thing is, Coates, I mean, Kendi, there's nothing we have to say about Kendi that we couldn't have said about Coates six or seven years ago. And six or seven years before that, you could have picked somebody else. And so it just kind of keeps going around and around. There's certain people that see things one way and certain people that see things another and certain people that are in the middle. And I think that you and I are in the middle rather than on the, the hard right. But the question is, what does what we do serve as a purpose? And we're supposed to say, well, we're being part of the conversation. And I feel like we're representing people in the middle who see that there's something wrong with the radical left being treated as the norm. 
But the question does become sometimes, what exactly is this conversation for? You know, so I write a book like Woke Racism and a bunch of people read it. For what? What is it for? And I don't know if you have an answer to that question, but there's some days when I think to myself, to an extent, we're just we're alive. We're going to converse. We're going to express our opinions and let the historians decide what anything was for. But, yeah, I do have that feeling. Sometimes, I have three answers to that question. so much time at it. Yeah. I've got three answers to that question. I'm trying to stay in touch with reality. I'm trying to save the soul of my country. And I'm trying to save the dignity of my people. In touch with reality is just, it's just a lot of bullshit craziness and lying that goes on. So the idea that it's open season on black people and the cops are hunting black people down is a lie. It's untrue. It's false. There's a lot of lying. The summer of 2020, I'm not going to rant here. I'm going to stop the rant in midstream. The summer of 2020 was an absolute disaster in terms of mostly peaceful protests that actually were looting, riotous, uh, violent anti-police demonstrations that uh, raised fundamental questions. And we'll talk about the Rittenhouse trial and so forth and so on. Anyway, the country's future is at stake with how we parse the race question. Did you see the fires? Did you see North Michigan Avenue? Did you see what happened on uh, Rodeo Drive? Did you see what happened in New York City? This is not nothing. This is important. So I'm fighting for the soul of my country. And finally, I'm fighting for the dignity of my people. I actually want racial equality, not client patronage uh, regime where uh, incompetent and mediocre black people get passed over and patted on the head instead of developed to their full human potential, where criminals are looked askance at as they murder their own people in the scores in the hundreds on the streets of the cities of this country. And everybody pats them on the head and says, oh, no, 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 you didn't do anything wrong. You're poor. You're a marginal. You're and it's all about the police. So I'm fighting for the dignity of my people because I don't think America on the whole are fools. I think they actually know what violent, criminal, savage behavior on the streets of America looks like. They know to fear it and they know that the people who do it are beneath contempt. The fact that editorial writers and major newspapers are prepared to give them a pass doesn't mean that America is giving them a pass. The, the equality that I want is an equality of black people standing on our own two feet. So the reason I talk about race is because I'm not a fool. I'm trying to stay in touch with reality. You wrote the column yourself just a few weeks ago about all these liberal falsehoods that people feed us uh, left and right. A physics professor at the University of San Diego or whatever I was going to allude to the physics professor, uh, physics uh, job uh, uh, mm-hmm. announcement, which required a person who was going to teach going through some I think San diversity State, and inclusion. Yeah. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to I'm trying to stay in touch with because that's bizarre. To ask a physics professor how their instruction is going to advance the agenda of diversity and inclusion is surreal. It's it's beyond Orwellian. So I'm trying to stay in touch with reality. I'm fighting for the soul of my country because if we let these people have their way, they'll ruin us and we'll be at each other's throat. And I'm fighting for the dignity of my people because there's only one kind of equality worth having. And that's the equality where you can pull your own weight, Uh, not where people are feeling sorry for you because your great grandfather was a slave. Mm -hmm. You know, I am. I'm beginning to think that um. A really major plank of my feeling about all this is that the purpose that we might be serving 
is teaching people black and white, but I must admit it's mostly white. That's delicate for a lot of people. Teaching them to have the balls to stand up and say no to the excesses. And I wonder if we're expecting something too subtle in that I think our idea is not that these people need to think that there's no such thing as racism, that they're not racial inequities that need to be addressed. We're not saying ignore those things. We're not saying there's no such thing as racism. That's what our detractors like to think we're saying because it's fun to imagine somebody saying that. We're not saying that, but we're saying when you have something like a school deciding whether one physicist or another would be a better faculty member on the basis of, you know, whether or not they've read the proper anti-racist literature and have gone out into the community and acted upon it, that we say, stand up, say no, say that that's taking it too far, it doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't help anybody, and it's not how to make physics blacker in the first place. And I think if we could play some part in creating in the culture a bit more of a backbone about standing up to where anti-racism becomes religious nonsense, not that all religion is nonsense, but a nonsense kind of religion, then maybe we're serving our purpose there. And of course, there's a certain type who hears that and thinks that we are interested in getting white people's money for saying things they want to hear. But I'm not sure a lot of white people want to hear what I just said, that you have to not only spray yourself for racism, which one should, but you have to stand up to that intimidating person who stands up at the meeting and says that if you don't agree with their silliness, you're a white supremacist. You have to have the balls, especially if you have tenure. And of course, I'm thinking about that setting because it's the one that I know best, but any setting. And just say, no, I'm sorry. And have the basis for saying no, be able to defend yourself, understand what these people stand for and what their assumptions are, and be able to call them on it, and walk off proud, and even take some dings, especially on social media. I think that's a worthy purpose, because that means that we're, we're having a, a more mature culture. And I think the connection between that and political activism may seem somewhat abstract, but I would say that it's more concrete than the connection between people sitting around in circles talking about their white privilege and actually changing the life of somebody on the ground. Okay. So we've offered our respective defenses of the willingness to talk and talk and talk about mm -hmm. the race questions. And, um, you know, we'll see what people think about that. But you and I have a different temper with respect mm -hmm. to our reaction to these affairs. If I may, you're cool, uh, you're empathetic. I mean, I know your most severe detractors might uh, dispute this, but I think you're, you're very empathetic, you're very understanding, you're, you're, you're as, as I would say, I'd say people are fools, people are knaves, knaves people are idiots. And you would say, no, 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 they're, and they're bad. I want them, to, I'm, I'm mad at them. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I want to. And you're more like whimsical is these are my <laughs> words. I don't know if you'd agree with this. It's more like, you know, you're an eyebrow that's raised uh, as opposed to a scowl, you know? I mean, I want to smack. I want to bitch smack some of these MFs with their nonsense, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you've got a soft spot in your heart for a guy that's got to write a column twice a week for the New York times and writes the same column every week, not to be named, but we all know who we're talking about. <laughs> and you're like, damn, it's hard writing a 
column every week or two columns every week. I I can sympathize with the brother. And I'm like, he's an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Glad that's so mean. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm indicting myself. I know I should be better. I know I should be more, you know, in touch with the human dilemma, you know, the human stain. (laughs) And, you know, you're making me. I never thought of this until now. (laughs) The reason that I'm whimsical in that way is not because I'm such such an empathetic soul. I mean, I do try to be empathetic in that way, but you know what it is? It's my mother. I bet people are going to love that. Mm. My mother was on the front lines. She didn't like white people. And, you know, if you grew up in Atlanta in 1937 and you were black, why would you? But she carried that with her into the late 20th century. Mm. And she, I think she's no longer with us. And in, Mm many ways left us long before she actually passed away. But she, um, I hate to say she would viscerally have been in tune with a lot of the people that you and I don't like for that reason, that kind of person to me, I think is more human. I I kind of always want to think, how do they feel like that person washes dishes at night? How bad could they be? And I think it's because I'm thinking about my mother teaching literally racism 101 at Temple University. She's a beloved teacher. She, mm. you know, did sit-ins. I get it. And I don't want anybody to think I'm saying that my mother, what the, that I think of my mother, what I think of some people we've talked about on this show. But I think it's, it's, yeah. it's that. And so, for example, with the person whose name we're not going to mention, but if anybody knows who we're talking about, that's an example because it does... I do have to do a kind of a Jesus with that person. I've been in green rooms with that person twice. And in both cases, it was painfully clear that they consider me beneath contempt. You know, there's a way that people very carefully make sure they're never on the same side of the room as you are. If you wind up in the same conversational clump, they never make eye contact. That person does that. And so that's how that person feels about me. I think they're wrong, but I could never change their mind. And yet, I can't be mad at them. I can put myself in the head of that person and think it's my mother. My mother would have felt that about that person. And I know how she talked about that kind of person. And she was not an idiot. It's just that you were stamped by different views. And if anybody's thinking about it, by the time I had any of these sorts of views, my mother was not really available. No, we did not have any conversations about these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But still... I can't despise that person because I can imagine how a person would see someone like me that way. And I think that's because I was raised by somebody with a very different view on race. And that does make a difference between us because you, you're a little older. And so you saw realer things than I did. And I don't think you grew up with anybody like that. Or did you? Well, no, I, I grew up, um, not like that, not someone who would teach at the equivalent of Temple University teaching, as it were, anti-racism circa 1980 or whatever. Right. Uh, at 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 a urban uh, college. Uh, now, you know, no, I, I grew up working class Chicago and uh, there weren't that many intellectuals in my immediate family or people like that. I mean, we were not poor. Uh, but we were not middle class either. There was a college educated person here or there, you know, somebody who might be a nurse or somebody who might teach uh, elementary school or something like that. But a lot of people worked at the steel mill, stockyards, you know, they they drove buses and uh, different things like that. 
And it was very Afrocentric. I mean, this was Chicago South Side in the years. And, you know, I'm, I was born in 1948, everybody. I'm old. So, you know, it was Malcolm X. I mean, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, the honorable, the so-called the honorable Elijah Muhammad. And uh, a lot of rabble rousing, you know, Black Panther Party was very uh, prominent uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, especially. Um, and I had I was getting constantly regaled with not the kind of uh, civil rights worker, earnest, uh, anti-racist thing, but with a kind of angry separatist, you know, uh, uh, kind of kind of thing. I mean, my mother's brother, my loved uh, Uncle Alfred. Wonderful man. He died, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago. And, uh, he's a great man in a way. I mean, he had many progeny, you know, like a hundred direct descendants. Oh, is this that kids. uncle? Right. Yeah, this yeah. is that uncle. But, but I mean, he's not defined by that. He loved every one of his children, grandchildren, great grandchildren to pieces. I mean, he was absolutely obsessed with family. You know, the, the family is very close even to this day. He's a great man. But, you know, he was a character. I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, but, 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 he would come. I, I can remember giving the talk at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle Campus in about, I don't know, it was around the time that uh, uh, just before uh, the Anatomy of Racial Inequality came out, 2002, your book was out, 2000. So it's probably like 2001. And he came with like eight of his sons. Okay, and they stood in the back of the room and they listened to me give this talk. And, you know, Talk is probably left to where I am today, but, you know, it was still, you know, not what they wanted to hear from me because they wanted to hear me ripping the white man a new one. You they know, wanted, they wanted, exactly. Right. They wanted anger and they wanted, you know, they wanted Malcolm X. And I was a long way from being Malcolm X. And my uncle took me to the side uh, afterwards. He said, son, uh, we can only send one off to the Ivy League and whatnot. We sent you. We don't see us in anything you do. You know, I mean, it was an admonition. It was like, who are you? How are we supposed to relate to you? I mean, I thought we were fighting a certain fight, and here you are, and you get empowered. And How and, did he say that? Know. What was his, in that joshing way, or was it serious? No, it's a good question. It's a very, it's a very good question. It was, it was not a smackdown. Like, mm -hmm. Who the fuck are you? We I don't even recognize you. It wasn't that. It, it right. was more. It was more like a quizzical. It was like there must be something that I don't get here. That would almost you know? hurt even more. Yeah, it, it it did. It did. You know, help me understand. And in part, it, it hurt because it made me realize that I didn't have a program as such. I was just free forming. I mean, in, in other words, I didn't have anything equivalent of his Afrocentric politics. That was my politics. That I could say, no, Uncle Malcolm X was wrong. Here, let me tell you what I'm doing. I was just being, you know, reacting and being myself and expressing the thoughts that I had. I mean, which was a combination of a lot of different kind of things. I mean, a Christianity that he could have never credited. You know, I was a born again Christian at the age of 40 uh, and uh, had been baptized and whatnot. And, and my uncle was, uh, how could I put it? Um, he was a uh, black Hebrew. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, he 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 basically taught uh, to his brood that uh, we were the original uh, 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 Hebrews, that uh, mm -hmm. African descended people were the real Jews, quote unquote. I mean, he wasn't picking up and moving to Demona 
in the Negev desert, which is where a lot of uh, American right. expatriates have congregated who are of this, uh, you know, of this view. But, you know, the, the way he read the Bible was that's us that uh, they're talking about in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and whatnot. That's us. Mm-hmm. And, and we're in, and, and it's been usurped, you know, th- this kind of thing. So he couldn't have credited my, you know, he would have thought it was soft and, you know, something, you know, weak. Uh, about that kind of uh, 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 religiosity, but he, he, you know. Did you, this is what I mean about how you have those years on me, and I really value what what you could perceive. The kinds of people you're talking about, including the black Hebrews, I remember a little of that. Yeah. You're experiencing them as you come of age, as a mature person. I experienced them as a six or a seven or an eight-year-old. And you talk about my mother teaching at that urban university, which had made a big push to bring in poor black people and give give poor black people college degrees. My parents were both very involved in that. I grew up listening to, you know, even to this day, I don't know what these things were. New career ladders, upward bound, IPSI, these these acronyms that all had to do with what everybody was doing. And so people would come over for parties. You know, they would they would foster Students, usually older than 21, who were, you know, now coming to college. And, you know, Glenn, to tell you the truth, I didn't have any maturity, but there was a part of me that kind of, I knew there was a different, there's Martin Luther King. Like, you see something on TV in black and white, and I've got my flashcards, and I've got the coloring book, Color Me Brown, (laughs) all that. And then there are these people who are at the house, and they're lots of fun. You know, a lot of them have Swahili names, and some of them learn a little Swahili. A lot of them are Muslim, you know, as opposed to Christian, which is what I thought was the default. They're, they were Muslim, and they bring dishes like it's potluck, and they're bringing food that I've never heard of. And you know, the, there's the big hair and the dashikis, and and the, and this revolutionary politics that it's all about kind of what we're gonna do. Even at seven and eight, there was a part of me that felt like a lot of those people were performing. I couldn't have put it that way, yeah. but I thought, what are you gonna do? Like there was something that was already done around when I was born. What are you talking about with all the fancy hair handshakes and stuff? And everybody was clearly having a great time. And it's not that I didn't like these people, but I look back now and I think as a kid, those people seemed like they were putting on costumes. Did it look like that to you? Because I still look back on that now. And I think Stokely Carmichael was putting on a costume. Is that what it looked like then? To you? No, not to me. Not in 1968 or 1970. It looked very real. It, it looked, I mean, on the very, very fringe of it. I don't know if you remember the move movement in Philadelphia. You look at Philadelphia. You remember move. Now, those was, motherfuckers yeah. were crazy. Those, those niggas was crazy. Right. right. <laughs> okay. So there was, there was that. There was that. But yeah. uh, a lot of it felt to me, uh, you know, of my generation and in my location, it felt, you know, really very natural. It was like the, it was like the next step. People were not, we're not acting. I mean, I, I had a friend of the family. They called him a cousin. He wasn't a blood relative, but he was very close. He grew up with my mother's generation in the same tenement that they lived in in a poor part of Chicago. And they, and they had done very well. And he had a bookstore and he sold, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X and, you know, all of the occasional literature. And it was Afrocentric. So there was all this Kwanzaa stuff and all this stuff about, you know, uh, Jumbo means hello. And yeah. There, there were, and, and he read these books. You know, he he was he was a a, a serious guy. He didn't wear dashikis. He was a he was maybe a little bit too old for the dashiki. He was a very natally dressed 
God, it looked like he stepped out of that. You know that Spike Lee movie, Malcolm X. You you remember the zoot suits? You remember the yeah. the, the, the guys? You know, down the street. yeah, yeah, with mm-hmm. Spike Lee and uh, Denzel Washington uh, walking down the street. I remember that exact that minute. Yeah, cool. These these dudes were just too cool for school. I mean, the belt matched the shoes, the tie, the jacket, the <laughs> crease in the pants, the the alligator shoes, uh, whatever. He he was he was that kind of guy. But he loved his books and he loved his his radicalism. And I don't think he was, I don't think he was faking. I mean, in retrospect, though, I don't know where any of it was supposed to go. You know, uh, when they gather at social events, you know, and the men would have their separate room where they go up and they they'd smoke uh, reefer and, and I remember talk that. Shit. Yeah, you know, uh, and it was some always about the white man. This, yeah, some of them too much of it, and drinking too much alcohol for sure. Mm-hmm. But it was all about the white man. Oh, y'all niggas don't know what you're talking about, man. You know what the white man is up to? You know, and then they would have their thing. You know, it was, <laughs> you really think he landed on the moon? <laughs> and this the thing was, I mean. John, I was one of the people who really did think that he, that Whitey was on the moon. I really did <laughs> think that he landed on the moon. <laughs> and I don't think they were acting is my point. I think that they were crazy, but I don't think that they were faking it. <laughs> And I take your I take your word for it. I was seven, you know. Just I was struck by that those people. A lot of sometimes they weren't named Hassan. Like sometimes they were named Earl. Yeah, I that scene exactly. Yeah, I yeah. just wondered what that looked like there. But yeah, in general, to me, it's about it's it's partly about my mother and it's partly about language. You you speak the language that you hear. And I just figure if you were immersed in something, how are we going to expect people to think beyond it any more than we expect Thomas Jefferson to think beyond what he thought of black people? You speak the language that you know. And so if it's normal to take a TV set when there's a little blip on the sociopolitical scene, because, you know, everybody's going to take it as just something we do as a general way of sticking our thumb in the eye of the man when, you know, Jacob Blake isn't treated properly. If that's what you see. You're going to do it. And we're expecting a lot for that person to sit down on some steps and think, you know, what is this all really leading to? That's the occasional weirdo who does that. Most people do what what they're around. And so if that person hasn't been anywhere but there, I genuinely can't be too angry. You know, if that person snatched one of my daughters and hurt her, that's different. But it would have to be something that that down low before I could really be hurt or angry. Or hurt. That's another thing. All the name calling that they throw at us. How hurt can you be? It's all they know. And now we're talking about very educated people. But yeah, I can't. I, it's, it's why I rarely get that angry. I get angry their sometimes. Bad, their bad ideas do harm. Oh, I don't know. I don't. Is the anger necessary? Okay, maybe I need to ask myself that question. What work is the anger doing? Uh, how does it contribute to the bottom line? And and what is it doing for me? Um, what I was going to say was, if their if their ideas are bad and wrong, and people follow these wrong ideas, and their lives are worse for having followed those wrong ideas, why am I not mad at that person? Uh, but then I have to ask myself exactly what work is my anger doing? I mean, maybe what it's doing for me isn't uh, contributing very much to society. Maybe it's a self righteousness fueled anger. I'm angry as a way of stoking my own sense of superiority as a, as a, you know, a, a way of uh, sort of 
okay, I don't know. I had that my my honest. This is spontaneous. I did not prepare. I don't really know why I'm so mad. I under <laughs> this being built like some sort of therapy session. I understand the anger completely. Um, but it's and, and I think ultimately though the issue is how do you how do you change these behaviors? And I think that um when it comes to say Omar, my thought is it's certainly not gonna be teaching Omar to think differently. For me, solutions involve changing incentives, changing temptations, changing what Omar is around, so that Omar's son comes out a different person. And so I think and this includes the cops. A lot of people think the solution is to change cop culture and that certainly has to be part of things but you can see how very hard that is like the the hot news this week is that Ahmad Arbery is being vindicated only because it happened to be recorded and that if it wasn't recorded then American justice would have continued the way it was and that you know that's also been said about other such cases and you know maybe that's true and as far as I'm concerned the thought there is okay isn't a little quixotic to assume that we're going to change cop culture in 18,000 police precincts across the country so my thought is as a as somebody who's trying to be a problem solver and i think this comes from linguistics which is a kind of a geeky problem set sort of thing like engineering where you're solving a problem a lot of people don't know that about linguistics i don't study etymology so it's a, it's a science and i think well how do you make it so that omar doesn't have as much contact with the cops as he would otherwise and then I start thinking about the war on drugs and things like that. Get the cops away from Omar. Because if Omar is anywhere near the cops, bad stuff is going to happen. Partly because of the nature of the cops. Partly because of the nature of Omar. You know, in the culture that he grows up in and what he sees people responding to the cops with. Just keep the cops away from him. And next thing you know, you de-escalate a whole cultural situation. I get the feeling that's considered either an eccentric or an ineffective way of looking at the race situation. But for me, I just call it cold-eyed pragmatism, but it's a compassionate pragmatism as far as I'm concerned. And compassionate conservatism is what people are going to call it. But that's my approach to this sort of thing. How much can you reform human beings? That's the thing. Yeah, and I, I don't think I agree, but I, I can't dismiss what you're saying. And I, I can situate it. I mean, as an economist, of course, the natural thing you think about are incentives. You think about welfare policy and about the incentives of welfare policy. And, you know, you can do this from the left or from the right. From the left, you can say people are poor. They don't have decent housing. They they lack resources. And so they turn to gangs or drug selling. And from the right, you can say welfare is too generous. It discourages people. It pays people to not have uh, responsibility in their lives, but in, et cetera, and, and so on. And I want to allow for spiritual dimension and I'll come back to that if time permits in this conversation. I just want to mark the fact that I'm, I'm not sure that I agree. But I, I didn't want to leave the previous thing because I think I had an insight about myself. Why am I so mad? You know, you're sad and in a way resigned to the fact that Omar is never going to think any differently. And I'm mad. And I think the reason I'm mad is because I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of Omar. I'm ashamed of the Omars of the world. Um, Daryl Brooks. I think Daryl Brooks is the name of the gentleman who drove a vehicle into a Christmas uh, parade in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and killed a number of people and injured many more. And he happens to be black. I'm ashamed. I was just praying that the guy who did this thing was not black. When I heard that this event had happened, someone had driven a vehicle into a crowd. I was praying to myself 
don't let him be black. Don't let him be black. And he turned out to be black. And then I was saying, don't let him be a Black Lives Matter uh, follower with a, uh, a, a trail of comments on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And I gather there's some evidence to that effect, although I'm not completely familiar with all the evidence. So, so well, yeah, I mean, the point was I'm angry because I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of my black people showing their butts and acting like idiots and 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 being uh, not worthy of being respected and, um, you know not performing uh, and then belly aching and, and crying and making excuses for not performing. And this is complex. And, you know, I'm working on the self-analysis stuff that I'm doing in this writing project that I'm in embedded in. And, and so I don't want to draw you too far down into that, into that uh, rabbit hole, but a sense of shame at the discrediting behavior of my co-racialists leading to being angry at them. Why don't they stand up straight with their shoulders back? Why can't they get their acts together? Why are they, you know, time and time again, leaving me in this position of feeling ashamed? So I'm, I'm, I'm angry with them. Um, but I was trying to say two things, and that was one. And the other one was to disagree with you about you don't think anything that can be done you don't think there's anything that can be done that would change Omar. And I, I, I want to allow for the possibility of a transformative experience for Omar where his, uh, it's a quasi religious sentiment that I'm expressing here. I, I want to, I want to allow for the possibility of a movement. We are underway. This is part two of the conversation with John McWhorter for the Glenn show. Uh, we've had some technical difficulties that cause us to need to restart. We are restarting editors. You can splice it together. So, uh, John, I was just saying you had made the uh, observation that you thought a lot of the problems with race and inequality are just not going to be solved by uh, changing the way people think, whether it's about the cops, how they think about kids in the cities, or whether it's about um the uh, uh, welfare dependency or educational failure. I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I gather you think we have to be clever about how we organize systems, what the incentives are that they create. If you don't like uh, the interaction between uh, black kids and the cops. Let's do things that make the cops less present in black communities, like terminate the war on drugs or whatever. I'm summarizing what you were saying. and. I was saying, I don't think I agree that you can't change Omar. Omar is our prototypic uh, low-income inner-city resident who's getting in trouble with the law or out there acting up. I'm not sure that uh, giving up on the project of reaching hearts and minds and convincing people to look at how uh, they are behaving differently, what their responsibilities are to their children, of uh, what constitutes living a good life. I, I'm not sure that I want to give up on trying to uh, marginalize and condemn the behavior of people like the violent criminals and communities who are taking lives. I, I, I want to call them out. I, I, I want to hold up a banner that, you know, that's not who we are. We African-Americans. I want to have some ideals. Uh, about uh, what it means to be a responsible member of our community. And I want to judge people, things like this. And, and I, I think that that can make a difference. Uh, 
Uh, but and I'll stop this soliloquy. I was also just wanting to get on the record that you're sad and I'm mad. That was my summary of our differences and the way in which we react to some of the problems in the black community. I'm mad at people for not acting better. You're sad that it's given their background and what they've been exposed to unreasonable to expect that they would act any better. Um, and I, and I, I think one of the reasons I'm sad is because I'm ashamed of the way they act sometimes. And I hate the way it makes me feel this feeling of shame, uh, in my blackness and my being tethered to other black people whose behavior is contemptible. I mean, guys running around with guns, popping them out of windows and shooting kids sitting on their grandmother's lap. That's contemptible. That's despicable behavior. I want to condemn it. Uh, and it, it, uh, makes me angry. And I need to look at that anger, but I'm angry with Omar because I know he can do better. And I'm angry with the intellectuals who tell him he can't. Because I think they're full of it. I think they're in the game for themselves, not for Omar. They live high on the hog, the Nicole Hannah Joneses and the Ta-Nehisi Coltses and the Ibram X Kendys of the world. Uh, they do well, they're honored, they're feted, uh, they're said to be prophets in their own time um, as they preach a gospel of surrender uh, for their people. They, they throw themselves on the mercy of the court. They call out to white people, save us, save us. And we won't call you racist anymore if you would just save us. Um, they besmirch the dignity of my people, I think. They give ready excuses for sitting back on our haunches and for not seizing the opportunities and bearing the burdens, burdens of our freedom. Uh, they live in white people's heads. It's, it's all about white supremacist this and racist that. I'm privileged this and that. Um, I think it's way too easy. They take the easy path. So I'm mad at them and I'm mad at Omar who listens to them and feels uh, excused from his responsibilities by them. Um, they've always got an excuse.